Hi, this is Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and I will be your host for the next two hours. Allow me to introduce myself. I am a certified financial planner practitioner and an investment advisor. I am co-owner of McNamara Financial Services, Inc. in Marshfield, Massachusetts. McNamara Financial is a federally registered investment advisor, and by my definition anyway, is a true family business. We work with clients like you every day, regular people that need help making sound financial decisions or people that want one less thing to worry about. I work with clients for a fee based on assets that I manage or an hourly or flat fee for creating financial plans. I am not compensated via commissions unless I have the pleasure of helping someone with their insurance needs. There are some things worth paying for and perhaps a lifetime of financial security is one of them. I of course cannot guarantee that working with me will ensure a secure financial future. McNamara on Money has been a call-in talk radio show since 1990. I love hearing from listeners and there truly are no dumb questions. In fact, I like the simple questions because everyone should have the answer to those. Just don't call me asking for the next hot investment or which market is going to outperform this year. Number one, that's not the nature of this show. And number two, I have no idea. Any advice I give to a caller is meant to be generic in nature and should be verified with his or her own financial professionals. You will hear about a variety of topics on this show that relate to investments and personal finance. We try to cover topics that people can relate to regardless of their net worth or financial situation. And of course, we try to keep it interesting. I would crunch numbers for two hours or spreadsheet cash flows because I'm a total math nerd, but that wouldn't much make for good radio. Instead, I choose to educate people on topics surrounding big financial events in life, like marriage and divorce, kids in college, death of a loved one, career changes, and of course, retirement. I once heard that it is a smart man that knows what he doesn't know. I'm sure it was my dad that said that, and I'm also sure that it applies to women. That is why I invite guests onto my show that have expertise in different areas also related to personal finance. I feel it's important to note that the opinions of these professionals are not necessarily the opinions of McNamara Financial or any of its advisors. As long as we are on the subject of disclosure, I should note that while we may discuss investments and or markets on this show, that past performance is not indicative of future results. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. I'm joined this morning by two others. Um, my husband and business partner, Kirk Reed. Uh, he's in studio, ready to take callers for anyone listening on the South Shore, 781-837-4900. If you have any questions for us, if we're not covering something you want us to cover today. Um, we are also talking with Danielle Van S, who is an estate planning attorney with DGVE Law, founder and owner and uh, sole attorney at DGVE Law in Hingham. So thanks again for being here. Good morning, Danielle. Um, we've been talking about uh, settling estates today. I think this is the first time I've solely focused on this topic on the show. Um, just, you know, all things that that people, uh, steps people need to take and things to think about, uh, things to do when you're settling the estate and the finances um, of a loved one who has passed. So um, all good things. I'm enjoying it. I'm learning a lot. You know, I was thinking... One of the things I want to get into is is uh, expectations in terms of the time that it takes to go through this process and the difference between um, going through the probate process, you know, settling a, a probated estate versus settling in a, a what I think what you would call maybe a trust based estate. Um, but <clears throat> sort of before I get there, I was thinking as you were talking about Danielle, um, how long things are taking right now you know, to go through the courts, just to get, just for that personal representative, the, you know, the old term was executor um, of the estate. Just, I think you said that it's now taking two or three months just for someone to get um, officially appointed as the personal representative of someone's estate. And that's not even going through the probate process, right? It's, it's unpredictable. It's really unpredictable. It's widely varying county to county situation to situation, depending on the day. I was just like, as you were talking about that, and again, we didn't even really get into like how long does the probate process take and what does that look like, which I would like to get into. But um, I was was just thinking about real estate right now is so hot, right? And, And there might be people that are, you know, potentially in a rush to take advantage of the real estate market in terms of selling a loved one's home after they pass. But based on how, you know, the process and how slow things potentially are moving in the court system, um, you know, again, if, it, if the house wasn't in trust or something like that, could be that someone really 
can't at least at this point in time take advantage of the real estate market if they want to sell which is which is frustrating um you know and maybe the real estate market is still hot 12 to 18 months from now but but you know, i don't know so i'm sure have are you hearing people sort of voice that frustration i can think of one client who's um who's father recently passed and he, he had a piece of real estate in another state, but, um, you know, and it's, it's quite valuable. The market there is quite, uh, hot, uh, you know, seller's market. And, and they're having these frustrations that, Oh, I just, I, nothing you can do about it. They, they can't sell it until it goes through probate. So are yeah, you hearing the same concerns? Absolutely. Um, and we see this play out with our clients all the time and it depends how, as you said, the real estate was owned. If it were in a trust, it might be possible to list it and sell it pretty quickly. One of the things that can come up in that situation is whether there is an estate tax filing that's required to the Commonwealth mm -hmm. of Massachusetts. So even if the house is in trust and even if the person does have the authority to sell it and that's not going to be a problem, we still to be able to provide clear title to a third party purchaser for value to sound like a total law nerd. <laughs> to, to sell to sell it to somebody else and have a title insurance company issue you know um, a title policy and have clear marketable title you have to clear that lien through the state first which means that you need to know about all of the assets have it all put together and prepare the final income tax returns and the estate tax returns and seek that lien from the, the state so now you're involving the mass department of revenue in addition to everything yeah. Um, yeah. So it can be quite complicated. And then that's where the real estate attorney is talking with the accountant is talking with the lawyer and everybody's trying to hurry up and get all that paperwork together quickly. But it, it can pose a problem, particularly if the buyer is not willing to wait. If there needs to be an extension of time for circumstances outside of the seller, the, the either the trustee or the personal representative's control, that can be tricky too. If the property is owned um, in the individual name of the person who died rather than in a trust, then yes, the, the house has to go through probate before it can be sold. So you're in that timing game again about, well, maybe you can clear it out, um, clean out the house and stage it and get ready and prep it for sale and get an appraisal and all the things you need to do. But then is the buyer willing to wait around until yeah. possible to sell it? What is, I don't know if this might be a dumb question, but I never really thought about this before. What is the end result of probate? Is it just, so I understand like the courts have to, they do, they do those public notices. Like, you know, does anyone have a claim against any assets of, the, of this, the estate of this person? I understand that. So is the end result that the court says, you know, you're free and clear to distribute the assets per this will? Is that... I never like thought about what's what finalizes it. What, what happens, what's the yeah. end result? Yeah, yeah. So, so after filing, then the person who's serving as personal representative is responsible for for garnering all the assets of the estate, gathering everything, figuring out what there is, figuring out who are the beneficiaries, how old are they, are they under any disabilities, um, are there creditors, in what order do they need to get paid, have we fully accounted for all those assets, have we filed all the taxes, once that's all done. So hold on, sorry, back up, is the, is the court the, the personal representative is doing that. The court's right. not doing that. They're not right. involved in that. They're okay. Uh, if, if it's an unsupervised administration, the personal representative is doing that. And so that'll depend again on the circumstances and whether okay. if there were a will, it said that that's how they should serve or the court finds that that's okay. Um, but it's necessary to look at who are the beneficiaries. If, if there are minor beneficiaries, yeah. they need to be represented. Is there a parent? Um, is the parent the same person who's serving as personal representative? Okay. Um, is there a beneficiary who's incapacitated that might need a legal guardian to serve his or her interests? So um, then it's up to the personal representative to start, you know, paying things in the proper order. And then once it's all said, distributing the assets out. And then the, the end, I guess you would say, would be filing a final inventory and accounting with the court, having the court approve that. Okay. And then um, ideally we would be releasing the personal representative for personal liability that they've done the job, okay. the court signed off on it. There, are, there aren't any um, unresolved issues and now it's done. Okay, so the, the personal representative is distributing assets during the process, during the probate at process. The end, at the end. At the end of the probate process, the yeah. court gives them the okay, they stamp some paper that says you're okay to distribute. 
actually it's the other way around the personal representative would distribute it out and then the court would say okay you did your job now you're released what, now it's so done. what when does the personal representative have the authority to start distributing per the terms of the will once they get those letters testamentary then they can start that process no and that's ah. what, i know and that's where i was saying ah. that it's really yeah. really important that the both the trustee or the personal representative and all of the beneficiaries understand that the personal representative cannot just start writing checks and distributing assets yeah okay um, they really do have to wait and sometimes it's very frustrating in in the before times it would take 12 to 16 months in massachusetts to fully administer an estate that we're going through probate that way um, that would be about average and normal it's not possible to close an estate in massachusetts before one year has passed it has to be at least one year okay. so um so, and that's kind of not not a possibility now i would say it's probably more likely you know a year and a half even two years would be expected right now under the circumstances unless it's very very simple it's voluntary administration less than twenty five thousand. um you know it, it always depends it depends what we're dealing with and who's involved you're dealing yeah. with people so people make things complicated sometimes um <laughs> right i mean i don't know what you're talking about none of my clients are complicated yeah. people that are involved that we didn't anticipate being involved or assets that we didn't know about i've had yeah. clients where the family thought they knew everything but suddenly there's a life insurance policy that was payable to somebody unfamiliar to anybody in the family okay for example um you know a paramour that the surviving spouse and kids didn't know about or things like that it, there are always surprises that pop up either very big or very small sometimes you have um family agreements you know uh, everybody gets together and they all decide they're gonna one sibling is gonna buy out the other siblings from a cape house or something but they never wrote it down so now the person dies and now we have to go back with no written agreement about how that's supposed okay. to play out are they actually going to pay into the estate now or not and so there's there's always something that comes up and depending on what comes up and and who's involved and what are the assets and what are the circumstances it may be more or less complicated take more or less time but i would say 12 to 18 months would be reasonable um, to expect that that would be the shortest period of time that a probate administration would take. If it's a trust administration and everything is fully funded into the trust and there's nothing that has to go through that probate court process, we just need letters to act perhaps to catch whatever, you know, small random things might um, might be necessary. That can go a lot faster. Can you give a time frame on that, a rough time frame? Um, so in that case, I'm trying to think about a recent one that we filed just for the current perspective. We're getting ready to close one out that we opened, I think, in the beginning of October, where it was a fully funded trust administration. Um, and, and there's no complicated circumstances and we were able to get all the paperwork very quickly. The client is an A plus client, gets all the gold stars for being highly responsive, returning paperwork and things like that. Um, by contrast, there are things that we filed last spring that we're still just trying to garner the assets and figure out what's going on. So that was so, for, so, so about four months. Yeah. yeah, maybe four to six months on the trust administration if everything is fairly straightforward and we have all of that information. So again, I, it's not that um, you're dealing with the person who's serving as personal representative. What are their capabilities? How quickly yeah. are they able to not only get access to that information, but do they have a scanner? Can they scan it and upload it to a secure client portal for us to review and get right back to them? Or do they have to put it in an envelope and mail it or swing by the office to drop it off in person? So there are so many human variables that go into the circumstances. Um, and in Massachusetts, a lot of the paperwork has to be, it has to be hand signed. Hmm. You know, physical that signature. So where are the people? Um, either we're sending it to someone out of state to go get signed and notarized where they are during COVID, or they have to come to us to sign it, um, and then we have to mail it or e-file. So there are all these pieces involved that affect the timing of the process. All right. So I get this question a lot, Danielle. And so, by the way, just for our listeners, so when you're talking about a trust administration or a trust, I don't know, do you call it a trust based plan or something, a trust-based estate. Oh, I don't know. Okay. Um, that's, for our listeners' sake, that just means that 
most, if not all of the assets are titled into trust so that they would avoid probate, right? So right. we would call it like a non-probated estate because the client had done some, the, the decedent, I guess I'll use that word, had done some estate planning in advance and had taken steps to, um, you know, have an attorney draft and then to, for them to fund trusts that, that allow the estate to be administered and settled more quickly. Um, and out, out of the, out of public scrutiny, really, because there's, there's, if you're not going exactly. through probate, there's not that public, um, you know, re request for what are they, I, I don't even know what that's called, where they're looking for any creditors of the estate, right? What is that called when they put it in the newspaper? A publication of notice. The court okay. uses a citation yeah. to the personal representative or the attorney of record for the personal representative, and then okay. you publish notice in the paper. Okay. So one of the questions I get a lot is that for, like, think about a family member who's not, for example, let's talk about a trust-based estate, right? So let's think about a family member, mom or dad died, one of the adult kids is not the trustee of the trust. Um, and maybe they don't, for whatever reason, have a good relationship with the sibling who is the trustee of the trust. And I'm always, you know, I, I always say communication is key here between the family, even if you're not getting along, whoever's administering the estate should be communicating with the other beneficiaries of the estate. You stress the importance of that. It's incredibly important in my opinion. But one of the questions I, I've gotten in the past is, think about that sibling who's not involved, but is waiting for X, Y, Z, you know, inheritance at some point, and they don't trust their sibling who's the trustee. And they're kind of like, well, who's holding that person accountable? How do I know that they are going to be following, you know, mom or dad's wishes per the terms of that trust? So are the courts aren't involved, right? Is, is it, who's holding that person accountable and how I, does that I sibling yes. know? I refer to them as the trust police and I, and I don't, I don't know that they exist. Maybe Danielle. Yeah. Well, yeah. What, can you talk through that a little bit? Yeah. So Massachusetts law provides requirements for notice and information and accountings to beneficiaries. It's under the Massachusetts Uniform Trust Code. And so okay. it would be the attorney representing the trustee should be counseling him or her about the those requirements and obligations. The person who is an actual beneficiary has a right to know what they are set to receive and approximately you know, where, to the extent that you have the information already, what are the assets inside of the trust or that landed in probate that are going to end up eventually in trust or whatever the circumstances are. Um, and provide a clear accounting of those assets. Sometimes what happens is because of whatever bad blood in the family or, or mistrust or the person's own you know, suspicious nature, they're expecting to get all of that information right away. And when the trustee yeah. doesn't have that information right away, that compounds the, the suspicion. It creates yeah. suspicion, even though it's unfounded. And so it's really not until you get to the end of the administration, whether it's trust or probate, that you really have a good on exactly what there is, where it is, what's going where, how it's all getting paid out, and what the distributions will be. And so sometimes it's it's not really fair to be accusing the trustee or the yeah. personal representative of acting in bad faith or not providing information. They might just not have it yet. So yeah. again, to your point from the very, very outset saying, I will share this information with you. Here's what I know so far. Please understand this is gonna take a while and you will see a full accounting of everything. So on a trust administration, before we would, um, you know, distribute checks to the beneficiaries, we would provide a full, you know, spreadsheet accounting of everything that ever came into or out of trust, um, probate estate, wherever it was, all of the different bank accounts involved, um, a full accounting and inventory of all of the assets that shows where exactly everything went. And that's how we got to the final dollar amount divided by number of beneficiaries. And here's your check. Okay. So you have an opportunity to review that and sign that they understand it and they accept it and they're comfortable with it before they receive the check or before they accept the check for deposit. So you said that's part of the Mass General Laws chapter, blah, blah, blah. I don't need to know those right. details. It, but the that, Uniform that, Trust Code provides that <laughs> specific um, notice and information of beneficiaries requirement. And is the notice to beneficiaries, Does is it required to be a 
full accounting of assets in the trust, or are they only required to be aware of their share of the assets in the trust? Because I can imagine, right, if, you know, they're provided a full accounting and they think they're a one-third beneficiary because there's three kids and they end up with a 20% share, I'm almost imagining that's worse in that situation than than them receiving just the, the accounting of their share. So how does that normally work and what's required by law? Yeah, so I think that that's where we go back to the ideally before the person dies, let's have these conversations um, mm -hmm. or let's leave a recording or a letter or something that explains if you're unequal distribution between uh, children. Why? Why are you yeah. doing that? Just explain yourself. And, and then that solves the problem. I like to have a family meeting with my clients and have an opportunity for the parents and the adult children to say, this is what we're doing. This is why. Um, if it's all equal, it's not as big of a concern. But it, whether it's legally required or not under the law or under the terms of the trust itself, there's a calculation involved. Is it better to just provide the entire trust knowing that this person is going to be mistrustful to say trust too many times? Um, is it better to just give them all the information or did the person who created the trust really not want them to have that information? Is okay. there information in the trust from which the parent, for example, was trying to shield the child so it wouldn't cause hurt to the child? And then the child is demanding to know all the things that maybe he or she doesn't really wanna know. Um, so there's, there's the law and the requirements under the law. There's whatever the language of the trust was. There's the intent of the person who created the trust and then there's there's the apparent need of the beneficiary to know all the things. And so it's weighing of all those different factors to determine how much information to provide when. I, I'm, curi I'm curious of these, these uh, family meetings that you are recommending, how often do they take you up on that? Yeah, a good amount. My clients okay. do take me up a good amount. Um, we don't need to get into dollars in those meetings. There's no used to that, but just a basic understanding of this is what type of a plan it is and this is why we made these choices. You know, it's important that the parent in, in this example, that the parent be making his or her or their decisions um, without any influence on the basis of the children. But once it's done and the decisions are made, I think it's a great idea to involve the adult children and explain what all of the choices and intentions are so that there's an opportunity to clarify those yeah. things. I, before. No, I, I agree. I think, I think yeah. it's a Terrific idea. I was just curious in reality how often it actually. No. Yeah. So again, in the before times, yeah. I would offer these meetings and it was always hard logistically to get everybody together at the same time. Everyone's busy, has different schedules. One of the benefits that's come out of this. COVID situation is that we can do family meetings by video conference so easily. And so I've been doing a lot more of them recently because it's so easy for, you know, yeah. families from all over the country to just quick hop on a video conference and we have a quick call. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, just going back to settling a trust based estate where most assets are in trust obviously that's you and you know you and i know that's um that settling the uh estate and getting money into the hands of beneficiaries is quicker um however what like you think about the, the trustee administering the trust-based estate, they also have to wait a period of time, right, for bills to come in and for them to pay the bills of the, uh, you know, of mom and dad, for example, before they can get down to their final, you know, number, right, that's distributed. So these things take time. Uh, that can take months right there, as you and I are, you know, we already talked about it can take, you know, months and months for for things to settle in terms of all the expenses being paid of the decedent, right? So people, even beneficiaries of a trust-based estate um, shouldn't expect their their payout incredibly quickly with, That's except right. for like retirement plans, retirement accounts with named beneficiaries, those things settle quite quickly. Uh, but assets in the trust, not necessarily the case, right? Because the trustee still has to pay all the bills, especially if there's nothing in the estate and there's no estate money to pay things from, right? That's right. And it's also important to, to um, consider whether the person who's serving as trustee already had access to all that information or not. If the person was already serving as trustee during the lifetime of the decedent, they presumably already have access to all the accounts and all the paperwork and the information. It might go a lot faster. If yeah. they're first stepping in and they don't already have that, that's going to slow it down just to get that information and get up to speed on it in the first place.
Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, we need to take uh, one more break for the morning. Um, you're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara Reed. Reed, excuse me. Joined by my husband uh, Kirk Reed this morning, and uh, Danielle Van S, who's an estate planning attorney with DGBE Law in uh, Hingham Square, and we're talking about the ins and outs of settling an estate. And we're back. Good morning. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. We're talking about settling estates for loved ones that have passed this morning. Um, I'm joined by my husband and business partner, Kirk Reed, and Danielle Van S, who's an attorney. She has a practice in Hingham Square, DGVE Law. You can find out more about her at DGVELaw.com. Um, how long you been in, how long you've been in practice? down in Hingham. You set up your own practice 10 years ago? Uh, going going on 13 years. Um, okay. Started in 2008. Yeah. Um, and Daniel and I met five-ish years ago, five, six years ago. And we, we now have um, several mutual clients. We've heard great things about you and your work with clients. So appreciate that. Appreciate you. Uh, always a pleasure to have on the show. So thanks again for shedding light on this topic because um, honestly, the ins and outs of settling a state for me are like, they make my head spin. Kirk, Kirk's raising his hand. Do you we, have a question? We have a caller. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, we have Ken in Pembroke. Ken, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Good morning. Good morning to you. What can we do for what you? Can do for, what can we do for you, Ken? Good morning. Uh, so, uh, good morning. Uh, yeah, so starting from scratch. So, uh, I'm uh, 67, and I have no will. I have no, none of those documents that probably I should. So, I just have sort of a general question about what are the main documents I should see an attorney about. Uh I don't have any, I just have the house that I live in, no other real estate. Uh, and like a lot of people, I guess I have some investment accounts, some stocks, uh, but I don't think anything terribly complicated. So just wondering about the, you know, the main uh, things that I should have in place, should put in place at this point, should have put in place probably a while ago, but haven't. Well, better late, better late than never, Ken. Um, I appreciate the question. I'm going to hand that right over to you, Danielle. Yeah. Good morning, Ken. Thank you for your question. So um, I, I find that when we don't really know what questions to ask, we'll ask for a checklist of documents that we need. And often it's followed by how much are those documents going to cost. And I want to say that um, although it's possible to guess a little bit from what you're saying, there's so much information I'm missing to be able to give you a good checklist of what you would need. So for all of my clients, the first thing that I do is start with a review of all of those assets, how they're titled, who are the other uh, family members or intended beneficiaries, and based off of a full evaluation of what's involved, who are the people involved, what are your intentions, then I would recommend the particular documents that would accomplish your goals and get your assets to the people you would want to receive them. So um, it so it depends, again, to sound like a lawyer, it depends. For some people, a simple will-based plan is really sufficient. And then you're talking about what we would call an I love you will or a simple will. I love you, you love me, I leave everything to you, you leave everything to me if there's a spouse involved, for example. Or if there are adult beneficiaries, sometimes it's appropriate to have a simple will-based plan with pay on death or transfer on death their accounts and beneficiary nations but sometimes that's not quite right and if there might be taxes on the estate if it's possible to minimize that or if there are concerns about a beneficiary receiving money outright in one lump sum as opposed to kind of slowing the distribution down for his or her benefit or if a beneficiary might be underage or incapacitated or receiving needs-based governmental aid, they're all different factors that go into it that would lead to recommending one course of action that results in one set of documents versus another. That was a total, that was a total attorney answer, Daniel. I know, but it's well, let's, talk about, let's talk about, how about, how about, how about we could give Ken examples of the most common legal documents that, that people have? Like, for example, yeah, I would so, say he probably should have a will, a power of attorney, right. a healthcare proxy, those. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every legal adult 18 years of age or older needs to have at least basic healthcare directives in place. So, you know, HIPAA authorization to access protected medical care. In Massachusetts, we call it a healthcare proxy to make your wishes known, either um, a living will or a do not resuscitate or comfort care order, depending on health and age and circumstances. Um, I like to do a separate authorization of anatomical gifts if people want to be an organ donor or not and what restrictions they might want to put around that. One thing that I think is often overlooked that is so important when we're talking about the administration side is what are your wishes with regard to final disposition of bodily remains and memorial services. So whether you have a preference for cremation or burial, which um, often clients will say, well, let them figure it out. That's up to them. They can decide what they want to do later in terms of any memorial. But when people are grieving and they're in crisis, sometimes they're not behaving rationally. And those particular questions can become the things that families stop speaking to each other over. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that you have any wishes and you can document them and memorialize what your wishes are, it's really a gift that you leave to the people you love so that they're not making those decisions in crisis. They're just executing on your wishes. Um, I also like to make sure that everyone has, everyone over 18 has, as you said, a general durable power of attorney to manage all of your assets that are in your individual name while you're living. Um, That only works while you're living. The authority under a power of attorney goes away upon your death automatically by operation of law. So then everybody also needs to have a will and depending on what else is involved, as I was saying, it's either going to be a simple will or what we would call a poor over will. And what a pour over will does differently is instead of specifying who gets what, when, how, under what circumstances and all that, um, and instead of having to provide the full accounting and inventory of all the assets to the court and making that all public, it, a pour over will would pour all the assets over into a trust and distribute that all privately and quietly according to the terms of the trust outside of hopefully the court's involvement and oversight. Is that a better answer? That's a little bit better, yeah, yeah totally, yeah. Yeah. Ken, no, what questions very, do you have? Yep, no, so that's very helpful, yeah, those common documents. So uh, so if you have a will and those documents you're referring to, you don't have to go through probate? Is that no, correct? I- No, unfortunately, just having the will does not avoid probate. That's a common misconception. Uh, A good mnemonic for that is where there's a will, there will be a probate. Um, (laughs) There will. Um, So it really depends not on whether you have a will or not how you own your assets. If the assets are in your name, they're going through the court process after death, unless you have provided for distribution. It, you know, again, it depends on the assets. So with an investment account, you can put a pay on death designation. With a retirement account, you can have a beneficiary designation. Life insurance policy, you can have a beneficiary designation. Um, but re- real estate, again, real estate. it depends. Maybe yeah. maybe you transfer title while you're living um, and mm-hmm. keep the right to live in it, or maybe, you hold on to it until after your death and then it's going through probate. So it really depends how the assets are owned. If your name is on them and you're not around anymore to to say where they should go, then that's when the court steps in to say where they should go. Okay. And a life Tanner. estate is a life estate is that situation where you have the right to live there but the property's transferred to somebody else. I think I did that with our parents at one yes. point. Yes, um, it is possible to transfer title to real estate while you're living and reserve the right to continue living in there. And depending on the, you know, family circumstances and who's involved, that can be a really good option. Okay. And uh, is that easier to do some on the edge of uh, having my mortgage paid off? Is that easier to do when there's not a, a, a lien like that? You know, when you, when you, own the house outright to do the life estate? Is it better to wait, would you think? Or? Yeah, that's that's also a great question. If there is a mortgage on the property and you're transferring title to someone else, then you could be accelerating the, the note and making it be due in full. So at that oh. point, you're either selling the property to pay off the mortgage or you're trying to get the mortgage company to allow you to assume it. So if there's a mortgage on the property, then we generally don't wanna be transferring it to anybody or any entity. Okay, and is a, is a durable power of attorney a uh, 
in effect all the time? Like I know some things only take effect if you're no longer competent or able to make decisions and some things are always in effect if you get my question. I do. That's a great, that's a great question, Ken. You know a lot for someone that doesn't have those legal documents. <laughs> I know I should have should have put this into effect a while ago with my knowledge, but that's me. <laughs> um, this is it's tough stuff to think about, and and it's not fun to want to schedule an appointment, talk about, or or pay money to get it done. So I I get it. I empathize with with not wanting to deal with it, but you definitely do know a lot about this, and that was a great question. So we would refer to that as being either um, a springing power that would come into effect only upon the finding of incapacity, or we could have it be effective immediately. And so again, it would depend on the circumstances and your comfort level and who are the people you're appointing, whether you want to give them authority immediately upon signing, or whether you want to make sure that you're the only one who has that authority until you're actually found to be incapacitated. And if you have so that situation where it's in effect always, then I could make decisions, but also the other person could make decisions. Is that a good description? That's a pretty good description. Of course, you're always yeah. dealing with whatever bank or, or company that you're trying to deal with and what are they going to require to show that, yes, okay. you do have authority. Um, so it depends both on the language of the legal instrument, the power of attorney, and who's on the other side of receiving that document and wanting to comply with it. Okay, good, good. One final question. Are you familiar with, this is just something in my work I've heard of, but I don't know a lot about, uh, and I think it's just in this state, MOLST, M-O-L-S-T, it's some, some yes. sort of healthcare document. Yep, that, so that would be um, what I referred to as a comfort care order. Sometimes you hear people say the pink paper, the pink paper. Um, so okay. that is a document that you would review with your physician in the context of your, you know, your age, your health, um, your personal preferences, when you would indicate what types of medical care you would or would not want to have if you weren't able to communicate those wishes yourself. Okay. Thank you. You've been very helpful. I don't want to take all your time, but that, that was uh, uh, just helpful to get some of the names of those documents. And now I got to go ahead and do something. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for the Make question. the call, Ken. Thanks for the question and the call, Ken. Have a good day. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Right. Bye. Bye. Uh, we actually we have another caller. Okay, those were great questions, by the way. I think Ken was an attorney in disguise, and he's testing you, testing you, Dad. Might have been. No, I'm kidding, Ken. I'm kidding. All right, yeah. Who's next? Uh, we have John in Marshfield. Uh, John, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Good yes. morning. Yes. Good morning. Great. Good morning, everybody, and really enjoying the show today. It's learned a lot. Thank Good. You. Thank you. What can we do for you? <laughs> Hey, good. I have a question. Um, I'm an executor <laughs> and scared to death uh, about about this process uh, for my mom. And we're talking about like an estate that would be under a half million. There's no real estate, which I know is like a major non-headache. Um, Ninety-five percent of her money is in one brokerage account with designated beneficiaries, all family. Um, checking account, small balance, co-owned by one family member. Personal belongings will be distributed among us, hopefully no fights. <laughs> um, executor, you know, taking care of final expenses, burial, taxes, and all that. Given this, does a report need to be filed in probate court, and does a will even need to be made? We're looking at you, so Danielle. let me. Yeah, Kirk and I are like blank, but I know that what I do know is that you can't make a will after. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, but other than that, I don't. Point. My my yeah. first point is that I cannot um, professionally, ethically, I'm not able to provide specific legal advice to anybody who's not a client. So that's right. step one. How about things okay. for him to think about? Potentials, maybes. How about right. some maybes, Danielle? I know, I know. I feel like I'm saying that so often this morning, okay. but in this case, it is especially true um, so I don't know what if there was not a will it sounds like your mother passed away without a will in place and it sounds like that was an intestate estate um, so I, I don't know she's still alive Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Oh, I oh, so we can make a will. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Oh, much. No, but do we want to? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Do we have to? Um, 
nobody has to do anything that he or she doesn't want to, but it would certainly be preferable to have all of those wishes expressed and documented um, depending on how all of the assets are legally titled, depending on what the wishes are, depending on who the beneficiaries are in the relationships amongst all the beneficiaries. You alluded to some of that, but all of that would really make a difference. And so better to have that all documented and make it a smoother process, even if it's really um, straightforward, I would think that that would be better. But if the designated beneficiaries are all clean and there's no family issues, no disputes, and it's all one account and it's all designated beneficiaries, it would be preferable to do that, but it would it, it would not be illegal to not have a will. I'm not saying well, you're advising it's that. It's not illegal. It's not illegal. There's no requirement that you have a will. Basically, what the state does is it creates a will for people who don't make one. It assumes um, that relationships exist between people on the basis of their blood relations that they the, they assume the relationships between the parties. So particularly when there isn't that type of a relationship between the parties, it's even more necessary to make a will. But we do have a default that is under the law. The, the probate code specifies how the assets should be distributed depending mm -hmm. on relations of the parties. What's, also, one, John, final, what's, one, what's, one final question, if that's okay. Um, I went through this, unfortunately, sadly, with my wife, um, whose mom died in Missouri. And, you know, she was a designated beneficiary, and she got a check directly from a major brokerage company um, pretty soon, like within a, a month, five weeks. If, if, if you're dealing with a designated beneficiary like this, not in a trust, um, and someone passes, does that one-year Massachusetts rule apply for the distribution? No, then you're right. It would come straight from the brokerage house right to the beneficiary by check. Okay. So well, but Ken, can, I just ask, can I just ask one more question before we lose you, Ken? What's, what's the, you mentioned like 90, oh, sorry, John, John, John. Are you still mm -hmm. there? Yeah, you yeah. mentioned 95% of the assets are in a brokerage account with a designated beneficiary. That's great. What's the remaining asset? Just a bank account, like a small bank account? Yeah, I mean, we're talking a car. We're talking about a little bit okay. of furniture. Uh, we're talking about, I mean, maybe her diamond ring. Assume, you know, um, it, it's literally like, you know, say $400,000 of investments and, yeah. you know, 20000 of other, basically. Uh, you know, a car, the furniture. I mean, it's. I think it's as basic an estate as you can get. Yeah. Um, the only thing I would say, based on what you're saying, is is your mother living in, in a home with you or your siblings? No. Is she leasing a, a home? Yes. So the authority to enter her home might be something that becomes challenging. Um, if she is the only person listed on that lease agreement, somebody's going to have to have authority to go in there and secure all of her personal belongings, pay whatever was left on the lease agreement, um, move the assets out, safeguard them. And then with the car, if the car is in her individual name, then you have to retitle that. You have to re-register it with the registry of motor vehicles. And the registry of motor vehicles for a non-spouse will require authority from the court. So you might be going and filing just to be able to get access to your mother's apartment or wherever she's leasing and also to be able to deal with the car. And it's not even possible to go through that process until 30 days from the date of death have passed, assuming that the assets are, you know, as small as what you're suggesting, $25,000 or less. So there are still pieces of it that are a little bit more complicated. It's always, Alyssa, one of your questions or things that we had talked about talking about was the difference between property, whether it's car, real estate, whatever, bank accounts, being owned by spouses mm -hmm. or being owned um, as what we would call tenants in common, where you don't actually have that right of survivorship built in. It's not automatic. There's a partial ownership or there isn't a designated ownership like on a car. Um, so yeah, interesting. I tell me if if this is ethical. Um, <laughs> I was <laughs> I'm asking you some tricky questions. I know legal and ethical. Is it legal and is it ethical? Yeah, I know. Is it legal? Can I do that? There's like three yeah. layers of, of issues yeah. here. But yeah. um, one thing which I'm told is commonly done is people actually sign the back of their title, like car title, the car title. Yeah. 
allowing the executor or, or the or the family to um, to basically put the vehicle in the name of someone in the family and okay. having a clean transfer that way. I was wondering about that. I was wondering if mom could give it to one of the kids now. Right. And her name well, off of it now while she's living. Yeah. Right. But that's Danielle's, like, giving that's a, a, Danielle's giving a thumbs up. So it, I think it is possible. Yeah. It is possible for any of us at any time to sign our car title over to someone else. That is a possibility. Okay. Or even to sign it to blank and have it later put in a name. I I know that that may be raise ethical questions, but I've heard it. Uh, it it's possible to sign your car title over to a person that you want to sign your car title over to. <laughs> <laughs> We record these radio shows, John. The, uh, they're turned into they're turned into podcasts. This this is recorded in perpetuity. Yeah, I'd like to get the video yeah. portion of this. This would be really good. Yeah. I think it'd be quite 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 interesting. Yeah. Check out our podcast. We we have a podcast that we I, we didn't record today's video. Danielle's not a morning person. We, well, so she was like, we, we knew we were going to get this yeah. phone call. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate your help on that, and I feel a lot better about it. And I, I will, I will definitely go ahead and proceed properly on this. One, one, one other question I had. Good luck. Do you? I know you guys. You do trust in the states and wills. Do you like have the sort of like discount deal where you basically are a handholder for people who are who do their own thing or think they can do it like me? That's a good question. Uh, it is a good question. I don't. I the reason why is because my license to practice law um, is on the line. So if, okay. if I sign off on something, I'm responsible for the whole thing. So I'm not willing to take something that even another lawyer did and sign off huh. on it and bless it. Yeah. I want to make sure that I really am responsible for it and am willing to be professionally liably, liable um, for it. So wouldn't there, wouldn't there seem to be a market for something like that? Uh, you know, just like there's, there's, there's self-directed, like I'm a self-directed investor, like yeah. a, a person who you could like just pay X amount of dollars to and just pick up the phone and say, hey, Danielle, you know, I'm doing this thing here and I got these three or four questions here. I don't know what's going on. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a market for that in, the, in our world, in the world of investments. And there's people that, you know, just do hourly consulting and stuff like right. that, but don't manage the money. But yeah, right. I don't know. Dan, I've never heard of any attorneys that sort of work with the with the, um, the do-it-yourselfers, as we call them. Yeah, I, I think what you're mm -hmm. alluding to, John, is a what we would call um, a limited scope representation, where we might provide okay. a little bit of, of advice about a very narrow area. Um, I prefer not to work that way. What I find is that it's penny wise and pound foolish most of the time. You think you're saving money or making things easier, but often it complicates things. So um, I'm not interested in nickel and diming people. I really want to help. That's why I became a lawyer, as goofy as that. So I want to make sure that if I'm, if I'm telling the client, I am really genuinely going to provide you with peace of mind and make sure this works and takes care of your family. I want to make sure it really does. And I can only do that if I'm fully aware of all the circumstances and um, and make sure that I see it through to completion. All right. But if you want to bill me for the last 15 minutes, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> that, right. I, that fee only on the planning side, because yeah. once I know what I'm dealing with, I can reasonably anticipate a flat fee. On the probate and estate administration side, the trust administration, I often don't know what I'm getting into until I'm into it. We don't know what we don't know. And there are so many surprises. There are assets that are owned differently, um, complications with title that pop up that we weren't aware of, assets we didn't have any awareness of, missing beneficiary designations where we thought they were there, um, surprises with regard to, as I said, um, people involved that the family might not have known about originally. So there's always a surprise that comes up and it's really not possible. A flat fee and reasonably anticipate everything that's going to go into an administration. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your advice. And I wish you the best of luck, too. Thank, thanks for the call. Good okay, luck thanks. to you, John. Take care. Thank bye bye. You. Bye bye. All right. So I think we have, I don't know, like four minutes left, plus or minus yeah. three minutes. Three that's, minutes. Just FYI. Yeah. Yeah. That was a super interesting call. Um, what I was thinking is that, you know, sort of the, one of the whole themes that, um, you know, I pull from these conversations with you, Danielle, is that, um, and I think this might apply to John and his situation as well, where his mom is still living and, you know, he's just kind of thinking ahead. 
yeah, I always think that like planning ahead and even spending a little bit of money, uh, you know, that's a relative term, spending some money up front by planning ahead. Is it the cheapest way to go? Maybe not, but it provides such peace of mind and potentially can avoid, you know, sibling rivalry, you know, conflicts in the family and stuff like that. Um, you know, I'm a planner by nature and, you know, different different uh, area, of course, uh, not in the area of law, but, um, you know, I always think that planning ahead uh, just has so many benefits um, but and, and generally is worth the expense. But I'm sure you offer, you know, a no-cost consultation, uh, you know, for... I don't. No, don't, don't say okay. that. I don't. Okay. No, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, yeah. You know, for, for no cost, I can ask you what your name and your address are and, and what you're looking for, but um, I don't do it that way. Instead, I, I really dig into all of the family and financial information and then make specific recommendations. Okay. Um, I want to say on the planning ahead versus not addressing things or doing it yourself and how bad is it to kind of clean up on the back end. I, I'm a deeply empathetic person. I love helping my clients. As I said, it's why I became a lawyer. I certainly did not start my own little law firm over here on the South Shore so that I could make all the money. Um, I really want to help make people's lives easier. That's what I've always gone for as an attorney, even in the work I used to do previous to this. Um, being on the receiving end of administering my little brother's estate, I can say with all certainty that it is so much better to plan ahead, not leave things to chance, not leave it up to your surviving loved ones to decide amongst themselves. Don't leave them chasing paperwork. Don't let them decide about funeral arrangements and all the rest of that. What it does practically is it delays the grieving process or compounds and complicates the grieving process when you're spending all of your time dealing with those types of issues and um, not being able to kind of focus on the emotional health. It's, it's yeah. not good. Um, Danielle, we have to go. We are out of time. Two hours flies by when you're having these uh, conversations that you enjoy. I know that was tough stuff, but um, thank you so much, Danielle Van S uh, with DGVE Law uh, in Hingham Square. You can find out more about her at dgvelaw.com. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. You can find out more about me at McNamaraFinancial.com or McNamaraOnMoney.com. Danielle, always a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. You're a wealth of information and we didn't cover everything. So we're going to have to have you back one day soon. Okay. Thank Stay well. Take care. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye-bye.